From City Bridges, this is Randy Bartlett, and this is We Make the Road by Walking, the podcast where I talk with people from all walks of life about the paths they have traveled and what they have learned along the way. Hello! Welcome to the second season of We Make the Road by Walking. I'm really excited about our guest today. Uh, I actually met Dr. Adam Lobel almost 20 years ago. Uh, his partner was a good friend of my future wife's. At the time, he was a new father. He was living in upstate New York. And we went to pay them a visit and went for a long walk in the beautiful fields uh, around their home. Years later, when we moved back to Pittsburgh, we reconnected uh, and have since begun to work together on a lot of projects, including City of Bridges. Uh, as Adam will discuss, he works with our students every Friday, and it's a real honor and pleasure to have him as a part of this community, and I'm really excited for him to share his story with everyone today. I'm excited to have our guest here today, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. Who are you, and and what do you do? Hey, Randy. Really good to be with you this morning. Who I am and what I do. Uh, Well, in a lot of ways, like many philosophers, thinkers, mystics, meditators, people who reflect a lot. I, in some ways, my, my full-time work is reflecting on this question, who am I and what do I do? That's what I do. That's who I am. I spend a lot of time in contemplation, silently, reading the ideas and teachings of, of others throughout history, and then teaching in, in dialogue with friends and students and mentors, exploring what are we? what is this life? And that has taken the form of really being a lifelong student. I I was actually in, um, I was in graduate school for over 14 years. And so I've spent a lot of my time in school. I have been a student of Tibetan Buddhist teachers in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition very extensively since I was 16 years old. I've also studied with Zen teachers and with increasingly philosophers from the West and Western tradition. And uh, so I, I really think of myself as a lifelong student during a long periods of time, such as the coronavirus quarantine. I'm very happy and content to be in that contemplation. It's taken the vocational form of being a professor of uh, psychology and, and religion. It's taken the form of being something akin to a Buddhist minister, where for years I've worked with students developing path of meditation and self-reflection, psychology, coming from the Buddhist tradition and, and more, more modern perspectives as well. I would say that it also shows up as a father um, and as a husband in family life. I'm a student of the earth and of the non-human world. I spend as much time as I can out in the natural world and learning from the interesting modern philosophies of ecology, eco-psychology, um, and understandings of na- uh, natural evolution and development. And I would say I'm a student of politics and of activism and of what it means to have agency, to make a difference, to make an impact, different strategies, that that feels very alive for me and very uncertain for me what it means to be really an active activist and engaged person in in our society today. What are the things that you have done, the roles that you have played as as a lifelong student have taught you the most? What, What do you think those would be? Well, really, I mean, the most 
learning, what, what has taught me the most is, is really being in a marriage, uh, in a, a partnership and raising children for what's been a big chunk of my life now. And, you know, that, that's what arises first when you ask this question, because in, in some ways that's the greatest challenge and the greatest joy. And in, in a lot of ways, I feel like my more formal training and learning as a meditator, as a scholar, as a philosopher, as a psychologist, all of that really just has enabled me to learn from being in a, an, an ongoing um, family life. I remember the moment when Ali and I found out we were pregnant. We were quite young. We weren't planning to have children. We weren't really ready to have children. And I remember that moment of, of realizing we were going to have a child. There was this feeling of being rooted or grounded in a way that I hadn't been before. I think before that moment, I felt like learning meant traveling the world, going to cool monasteries and rainforests and countries and maybe reading cool books and, and going through amazing experiences that were dramatic, but fleeting, maybe like a bit of a dilettante or like little of this, little of that, even though I was deeply rooted in a spiritual tradition. Becoming a father really, to me, I think felt like, oh, now I have to show up and um, staying with that journey, that's been a long time and been, been in a marriage like, even though we're actually technically not married, but we've basically been in a marriage for over 20 years. And I've just learned so much about what it is. The phrase that's coming to mind is from um, the philosopher Charles Taylor, and he talks about situated freedom. You know, that you can, you can be free, like unconstrained. But what does it mean to be free in a very specific constraints or si specific situation? And the, the, the tension, productive tension there has been so powerful for me because you're held by love. You're held by this incredible love of your partner, of your children, but you're held in a situation that is often really challenging. And, and learning about that situated freedom has probably been the most rewarding, most I've learned, honestly. That experience of uh, how you are sort of shaping a path for another human being who's going to take their own direction, of course, uh, but you're certainly creating the experiences in which they then not only have their life, but also their aspirational visions for what they hope their life will become. And one of the purposes of this podcast is to hear from people who are in a place in their lives, and it might not be the final place, but then to understand how it is that they arrived in that place. And so I'd love to hear some about your journey from a 16-year-old and if the place that you are now was the place that you thought you would be when you were that age. Well, you know, I love this phrase, we make the road by walking. You actually introduced me to Miles Horton, and I, I was not familiar with him and not familiar with that book of this incredible dialogue between Miles Horton and Paulo Freire. And, but the phrase we make the road by walking, that has so much meaning for me from all of the, or many of the different traditions and lineages that I inherit and have studied from the, the Zen teachings and the Taoist teachings, um, and from Buddhist teachings, all the way to Meister Eckhart and uh, Martin Heidegger and the philosophical teachings. Heidegger actually has a phrase, the Holzwege, the path walking. And it, it's drawn from like, German timber practices, where there are certain paths 
in the German forests that will, would actually lead somewhere. You know, you could take the path from one village to another, or from a church to the town or something. But these Holzwege, these uh, wood paths, I think is how it's often translated, they don't lead anywhere. They, they've been cut by foresters who went out to get some timber. So they, they look like a path, but then they'll just fade and stop. There's something about that quality, I think, of my life, of all of our lives, where you might think you're going somewhere, you might think you have an idea of where you want to end up, but sometimes those paths just fade and stop, and, or sometimes where you thought you were going wasn't where you were going. And so, I, I mean, I feel like my journey is still like I'm on this wood path, and I really genuinely don't have a goal of where I want this to all go. And in some ways, I feel like I've already reached various goals. And so I can enjoy the path itself. To be a little more specific, uh, some of the thingies and little like stories that I, that I sometimes tell and sometimes don't tell that have been most formative really begin, I think, um, I always had some kind of absurd, uncanny interest in, in the East. And, and as a young boy, I, it was particularly the Japanese culture and Japanese aesthetic that was really calling to me. Um, it started off with, you know, ninjas and samurai and liking cool stuff like that, but then really became a passion for the Japanese visual world and um, how it felt, how it looked when I was 11 years old, I asked my parents to make my room look Japanese for my birthday. So they did their best for like a Connecticut Jewish version of a Japanese kid's bedroom, <laughs> which looked like, you know, like a 1980s Miami J Japanese or something <laughs> like that. But I loved it. And then I, when I was 13, I was bar mitzvah. I was raised in a reformed Jewish family, not very religious, but I wanted a Japanese themed bar mitzvah. My dad even hired a guy to dress up as a ninja to walk around. Probably the only bar mitzvah that had such a thing. So then that really turned into, you know, I started studying Japanese language and uh, history. Had a chance to go to Japan twice when I was 15. There was some scholarships available for young Americans who had an interest in Japanese culture. So I went over to Japan and did a homestay with two different families and lived in Japan for stretch during my um, freshman year of, of high school. As I went further in that direction, I also, during the 90s, early 90s, people were into shamanism and Native American spirituality. And so I had an older friend who kind of introduced me to going to powwows and reading about North American Native traditions, so Black Elk Speaks, and learning more about the history of the indigenous people that we had wiped out or nearly wiped out. Um, but that still endure here in North America. And that led me to, I was doing a lot of hiking and things like that, but a real, one really influential experience for me was I went down to Paraguay for the summer um, between my sophomore and junior years of high school uh, through an Earthwatch program, an Earthwatch. But you basically pay to study with uh, to, you pay to go help a scientist. So scientists studying penguins, scientists, you know, working on tracking animals or coral reefs. 
but I had found that there was an anthropologist who was studying the, actually the learning practices of how knowledge was passed on through the generations in a very small tribe known as the Chamacoco in Paraguay in the, the dry rainforest called the Chaco, right near Brazil. And so I went down as a 16-year-old and spent the summer with this tribe. And there's a whole story there, um, but the, the impact on me was pretty significant in ways that I still to this day don't fully understand. But it was really powerful to be alone, basically, as a 16-year-old in Paraguay and then traveling in Argentina and Brazil. And then I returned, went away to a boarding school for my last two years of high school called Cambridge School of Weston. And it was while I was there that I read a book by a Tibetan master named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And that was a book called Shambhala, the Sacred Path of the Warrior. And it describes this archetype of a spiritual warrior, someone who trains their heart, their mind to develop compassion and insight and bravery, to have a deeper connection with others, with the world, with the, the planet and to create what he called creating enlightened society. And so as a 16-year-old with my interests, this was just totally spot on. It had a quality of some of the indigenous teachings from Central Asia that actually predate Buddhism, but it also had this really rigorous tradition of meditation, of training your mind. And I think at that point, I had traveled a bit, you know, in, in Asia and in South America and had had a bunch of adventures. And I realized that it really was the inner life, training my mind. That's where the adventure actually was. That's where the, the Holtzvega, that's where the path was leading. So I went up and did a month of meditation in high school. I was not prepared for that. They warned me. They said, don't, don't come do this. It's too long. But I did it anyway. And it was really hard the first week, the whole thing, but especially that first week. But I spent a whole month, uh, 10 hours a day of meditation. And really took a leap in becoming a lifelong meditator. So then from there, basically, I was able to carve a path through college and where I was studying anthropology and, and religion. After I graduated from college, I went to go live at a meditation center full-time for a year. While I was in college, I should say, I spent almost a full year in China, Tibet, Nepal, and India. And I did a Buddhist Studies Exchange Program through Antioch University. Spent some time in, in quite a bit of time in India and traveled by myself through Tibet and the Himalayas. And I was a kind of wandering yogi. And when I had hair, I had like these long dreads and kind of just wandering around through Asia. Had, had that whole thing going. And then after that experience, connected more deeply with Chogyam Trungpa's son, whose name was Sakyang Nipam Rinpoche. And he became my Vajrayana teacher specific approach to Tibetan Buddhism. And um, after college, I, I entered that path formally. I lived at this meditation center for a year. I traveled with um, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche for a year as his personal attendant. And then suddenly my partner and I were pregnant and I suddenly had to become a father and figure out how to make that work, which was incredibly beautiful and really frightening and, and scary and and so to kind of make things work in the world, I decided to go back to graduate school. And I went to Harvard Divinity School and then got into the doctoral program. And while I was doing my academic work and academic research uh, at Harvard, I also was empowered as an acharya or a senior teacher in the Shambhala tradition. And so for 10, 15 years or so, 
I was responsible for developing the curriculum and the teacher training in the over 200 Shambhala centers around the world and was basically like a institutional oriented priest or minister for the Shambhala tradition, kind of head of education uh, for this large Buddhist community and organization while I was raising Javan and going through the graduate school experience. Then just to bring us to the present, I've left that position uh, within Shambhala for a number of reasons. First and foremost being that there was a, a large ethical crisis of, of sexual abuse and abuse of power by Sakyong Nipam Rinpoche and other teachers in our tradition. And it felt like the right thing to do to, to resign from that post. Now I've been focused on really discovering what it might mean for me to teach and offer all that I've learned and experienced in new ways and continue to learn about what a genuine ecological and politically engaged spirituality is in the world today. Thank you. I've heard your story before, and I, I always appreciate hearing it. Um, I think it's such a great example of the possible paths that we lead that aren't necessarily laid out before us from the start, but that we, we really are able to create along the way. And you know, one of the things that I heard again in this story is the degree to which some experiences in different cultures and different places help to shape your journey. Do you think you could speak a little more to the importance of, of travel and experiencing different perspectives and different cultures had on your growth and development? Totally. It was a huge part of my life. I'll, I'll, I'll say some maybe positive influences and then also some, some more critical or negative aspects mm -hmm. of it as well. For whatever reason, I had this interest in, in some non-European and non-American cultures as a young person. I'm just very thankful that I had the opportunity and the privilege to pursue those interests. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they got there exactly, but they were there. And so I was able to pursue them with the support of my family and being part of a, an upper middle class, really privileged world as a white person, as a person given certain access to education and economic privilege. And, and it's coming from a world where that was somehow accepted. Um, so there were a lot of conditions in place that allowed that to happen for me. I'm very thankful and appreciative of, of that. And yet, it's hard to even begin to say the way other cultures or traditions have influenced me. I, at this point, I, I'm completely rooted as an American white man from a certain economic background, but I also am not. I also, I don't even know where my thinking begins and ends in terms of East and West. I've spent more time being formed intentionally under certain kinds of words and practices and rituals that come from Asia, from Central Asia, from Tibet, from Japan, than I have been in quote-unquote European or, or Western contexts. And so I don't, I don't use the words East and West usually. I don't know where cultures begin and end. Um, there's such fluidity there. But that very perspective, I think, has come from a lot of travel, a lot of time reading, practicing, studying, being in monasteries, being with other cultures and languages and people, learning Tibetan, learning some Sanskrit, learning some Japanese, living with uh, different communities in South America, and as well as North American native traditions and communities. It's such an interesting thing to 
to, to not even know where, where one culture begins and ends or one civilization begins and ends. I really encourage any students, younger people, especially that I'm working with, to travel as much as possible. And actually, one of the real concerns I have about this pandemic and about what our future might hold is, you know, I can't, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure if that same world is available going forward. Even for Javin, he, you know, he might have taken a year off to travel before going to college next year, my older son. And I'm not sure whether that's even going to be possible. I don't know what it will mean. How do we get out of our own conditions? You know, how do you even look, have a crack in, in, in the wall, in the door, in, you know, to look through, to see other ways, other ways of experience? Um, maybe, maybe there are many ways to do that with other people right in our own community. I certainly am thankful for the, the experience of difference. Maybe more critically, I would say, I remember my first trip to Japan feeling really disappointed at the fantasy I had of cultural difference. Uh, it was awkward to live in a homestay family when I barely spoke the language and didn't know their rituals and their ways um, and, and the emotional exchanges. It, it was hard to be 15 years old uh, living in Japan. And it was built up and it was a city, cities and it was busy. And, and yet I, I loved it too, but it was, it was real. You know, from the very beginning, I think it was very real and challenging. When I was in Latin America, when I was in um, Paraguay, actually the border between Brazil and Argentina, I visited the famous uh, uh, Cataratas Foz de Iguazu, uh, which is where the movie The Mission was filmed, gorgeous waterfalls. And I really wanted to go see them. And I went to these, to these waterfalls. And I remember stand, it took me like three days to travel by bus. And I got there finally, and I'm looking at these gorgeous waterfalls. And all I could think of was I was hungry and tired, and I just didn't want to be there. And they were beautiful, but it was also like being in other cultures, other countries, there's, an, there's a quality of exhaustion and a quality of, um, you know, going beyond your fantasy. And in retrospect, when I think back at, at a lot of my travels, I don't know how much I was actually there and how much I was living in my own projections, assumptions, and wishes of what I wanted it to be or, what it, or how it compared or didn't live up to what I wanted it to be, which is where the intersection between training one's mind and travel is so important that they, they actually work together. If you don't know how to see beyond your own needs, projections, assumptions, bias, it's hard to travel. And at the same time, if you're just focusing on your inner life and you're not meeting up against very concrete difference, it's, you, you can easily kind of convince yourself that you're more free than you are. I mean, and that's a great perspective and a really interesting thing that you have learned through that juxtaposition of self and other in travel. What else have you learned along the way on this journey? Well, I mean, I'm teaching this class at City of Bridges, which I love, and I hope the kids, the students love, um, called Learning How to Learn. And, you know, I'd say that's what I've learned. I, I feel really confident I know how to learn. And whether that's how to approach a new idea or a question, you know, whether that's 
you know, I have a thought of something I want to pursue. I know how to pursue it. Um, I know how to work with the inner blockages and obstacles of my own neurosis, anxieties, neediness, confusion. And I know how to make mistakes and uh, not expect perfection. I know how to love learning. And that's something that will always stay with me. It's just a continual curiosity about this universe, this world, human experience and human social political experience, inner psychological experience, what what the natural world is, what do you, what do we even mean by the word nature? So I just feel like uh, I feel like something's been catalyzed in me that that is like constantly sparking learning and curiosity and a certain skill in learning. I don't even remember half the stuff that I've been through and the events. And I'm sure you feel the same way. We're at an interesting age where on the one hand, I feel like I've lived a really long time. I lived many, many lives. On the other hand, it feels relatively uh, quick. So I don't remember much in terms of specifics of all the learning and whether that's formal in school or travel or life experience or through meditative and mystical experiences that I've had. But I do know and trust and feel confidence in some living, ongoing unfolding of learning that that feels like all the time, feels like my everyday life. I remember at 15 and 16, feeling like people who were in their 40s were one, sort of glacially old, and two, probably had it all figured out. And now as someone in my 40s, realize that hopefully neither of those things are true. Hopefully I'm not glacially old, and I certainly don't have it all figured out. <laughs> I mean, we might be glacially old. But. It's possible. So speaking of teenagers, what advice would you give them, looking back on your experience, uh, about how to best chart their paths uh, towards the futures that they might not yet know are the futures they're going to have? I, I really think Joseph Campbell's overused phrase of follow your bliss is, is really the right way. And I tell this to, to my son and, and to any students who ask that the, the frameworks, the constraints, the, the set ideas of what one thinks they're supposed to do or, or how they're supposed to study or what they need to emphasize in order to make money, in order to find a job, in order to have a certain place or a reputation, you know, most of that turns out to be just incredibly thin and um, not true. That even people who focus on those areas, often that's not what happens. So I would say, yeah, follow your bliss, that, that find out the, the aspects and dimensions of the world and yourself that you care about and and pursue them limitlessly but pursue them with rigor and and i think that if you if you follow your bliss fully it will pop out the other side and and you will be forced to maybe learn things that you didn't think you wanted to learn at first so it's not necessarily the easiest course but i do think it's the natural course the way water flows downhill and we'll, we'll seek a way to, to slide and, and, and flow down. If you follow your bliss, if you find out, not like, like, I don't mean like you find out one thingy. Like, I like to play the flute, and I'm just going to do that. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's like, why? 
what what is it about the flute that's that's drawing you and what happens when you hear amazing flute music or when you um pick it up to play or when you want to learn to make a flute what is what is it within that 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 is really pulling you and calling to you and and exploring that question inquiring into that question so it might start with you know i you know i'm interested in you know environmental environmental stuff or i'm interested in computers or i'm interested in game theory or quantum mechanics but that will open up into other things as well so yeah follow your bliss and do it rigorously do it with a lot of of love and care and precision and discipline and it's going to be awesome it's just going to it's going to be awesomely painful awesomely different than what you ever imagine and awesomely rewarding and and magnificent um, along the way with no end. One more question. We're adding a bonus section since these are quarantine podcasts that we're living in now. Do you have any specific advice for wellness, things that teens or any human beings can do during quarantine to continue to treat themselves with the love that we all need to treat ourselves with? Yeah, and and we've had a chance to to do this, you know, at in our morning meditations uh, at City of Bridges in some of our morning meetings, and when I work with the students during the learning how to learn, we've really been bringing out the question, the the immediacy of the question of what does it mean to learn and to to have an experience of of well being in the midst of this, and um, a few key things. I've also been doing a lot of work with everything from cancer uh, patients to Buddhist students and, and meditators around this theme. And I, I think a few things have been most important. First of all, the permission to slow down, to not be productive, to not feel like you have to constantly be doing anything. And of course, there are certain things you have to do for school or around the, the house, but to not be afraid of space, uh, the gaps between activities to not always feel like we have to fill that space in. And that means really learning to work with boredom and make a friendship with boredom. In, in the Shambhala tradition, we talk about cool boredom and hot boredom. Uh, hot boredom is when it feels like itchy and you can't just wait to get out of your skin. Um, you, you just can't stay still. The space feels claustrophobic and thick. And cool boredom is when we relax into that and instead of fighting the boredom or the spaciousness, it can become a kind of healing, relieving a kind of peace. So making a relationship with not doing, with space, with boredom. And then we find that our days in social isolation can be incredibly peaceful and deep and rewarding in ways that we might not have imagined. It's a pretty precious time in a lot of ways, even though it's really uh, frightening as well. Thank you, Adam. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. Hopefully we'll be able to see each other in person at some point in the near future. Thanks, Randy. Yeah, really good to be in exchange with you and um, so in love with this question of making the road by walking and with the way that vision has influenced City of Bridges and the development of this incredible school. So thanks.
I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Adam Lobel. I'm really excited uh, about our second season of We Make the Road by Walking. Please subscribe to our podcast. It comes out every Tuesday. Uh, Also, if you'd like to see more about what we do, you can find us on the web at www.cityofbridgeshighschool.org, on Facebook at at Bridges High School PGH, Instagram at C-O-B-H-S-P-G-H, and our Patreon is at City of Bridges. Please give us a positive review or a five-star rating. It really helps. We Make the Road by Walking is a production of City of Bridges. Our music was written and performed by Chris and Kelly Miskis in Eagle Moose. Thank you all so much. Be well and talk to you next week. <laughs>